1: And welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have a really exciting show for you today. I have with me Dr. Paul Wishmeyer, who is a professor of anesthesia and surgery at Duke. He's also the director of the nutrition service and the TPN team at Duke. He's an associate vice chair for clinical research and the director of perioperative research for the Duke Clinical Research Institute. So lots of great, interesting roles there and really just an expert on nutrition. And we thought that it would be really interesting to talk about enteral nutrition in the ICU, especially for patients on vasopressors, which is something that uh, Dr. Wishmeyer has a particular interest in and recently published a uh, piece about. And so uh, we're excited to have him on the show and talk about this. Uh, Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Jed. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here and, and talk about something
1: that uh, I, I truly am passionate about. All right. That's great. And I want to say that this episode will be featured on anesthesiologynews.com. They have put out a new and fantastic podcast that I recommend. I'll say a little bit more about it when I do my random recommendation at the end, which is going to be about this. But I want to say that I really recommend you check it out. It's called The Etherist. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And it's about the drug shortage crisis. You can see that as well as all their news at anesthesiologynews.com. Fantastic. All right. So let me ask you first just a little bit about you. Uh, so tell our listeners, you know, how did you get involved in your career kind of as it stands specifically? Uh, how did you get interested in nutrition and uh, in research around nutrition?
0: Sure. It's, it's always something I get funny looks about when, when I tell people I'm an intensive care doctor and an anesthesiologist and I've spent 30 years of my life studying nutrition. Right. I get this question a lot. It's an odd, an odd thing to, to have your entire career focus be on. But for me, it really started when I was a, a kid, actually a 15-year-old, and um, was a pretty normal kid, never actually seen the inside of a hospital or dreamed of being a doctor. And um, shortly after Christmas, when I was 15, freshman year of high school, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis and was told I was going to come into the hospital and not get to eat for the next month. And I, I said, that sounds crazy. And, and they said, no, no, it really isn't. You have a serious illness. And so I was placed on TPN shortly thereafter and had my first exposure to clinical nutrition. And over the next three months, lost about 60 pounds and spent wow. the entire three months on TPN. Um, it saved my life, actually, and the dietitians that cared for me and the others really, really changed and saved my life. Unfortunately, my colon perforated. I got a toxic megacolon um, a few months into my disease and went for emergency surgery with peritonitis and had my first ICU experience as a patient in the ICU wow. um, many years ago at the University of Chicago, where I was a patient and ultimately went to medical school and residency years later. And so I think it was at that point I realized um, a couple things. One is that the, the steroids and the other drugs that they treated my IBD with didn't make me better. They just kind of made me crazy and, and didn't seem to cure my disease. And and ultimately, it really seemed like the nutrition things that were being done for me were the things that were really making me better. And I said, Geez, I want to study treatments for patients that don't make them sicker than the disease does, and perhaps focus that around nutrition. And I think um, I think the other piece too is this is my other interest is is in how we care for our patients. And I really felt like. Um, we didn't always see that there was a person laying in the bed. I, I think sometimes it's easy in the checking of the boxes to get all our jobs done. We, we forget there's a, there's a person laying there who's terrified and scared and going through the worst thing they can imagine. And so I think some of it was, was that, that I, I, I thought this experience could help me teach other doctors to be better doctors. But my research began just a few years later with the physicians at University of Chicago and GI that cared for me. And I went to them as a freshman in college and said, I'd like to do research and could could I volunteer? And um, they put me on a project looking at gut nutrients and gut nutrition in uh, various, various forms of IBD. And I moved on from there to do some work at the Mayo Clinic on similar aspects. And it wasn't until medical school that I really discovered my passion for critical care, where I really discovered my perhaps experiences as a patient and by that time I'd had six or eight more surgeries and actually at this point I've had 23 surgeries on my abdomen and have 150 centimeters of small bowel leaving me wow. on the edge of short bowel syndrome yeah. Yeah. and I've been on TPN many times in my life and been on enteral nutrition and, and uh, so nutrition is a fundamental part of my day-to-day life as I could at any time end up back in having surgery and back in the ICU I was last in my own surgical ICU in 2014. Wow so it's it's kind of a not only an everyday part of my research career, but it 's an everyday part of my life and and so it 's something that's very easy to be passionate about is in my research and in my clinical practice.
1: I imagine thank you for sharing that and you know I think it's so important a lesson to remember not only you know uh, that that um, this kind of research is important, but as you said that you know it's so easy these days with all the time we spend in front of computers to forget that there are real patients there, and I think the people who remember that best. As you so eloquently shared, are the people who have been patients themselves, um, and it's an important lesson for for those who haven't had that experience to remember that uh, it's very a very thin line separates those of us doing the treating from those of us in the bed. Yeah, at
0: any moment it could we could be switching exactly. sides, and it really is a eye opener.
1: Um, well, great, great motivation to get involved uh, in really important research. Yeah. So let's talk about, um, and we'll certainly put uh, links in the show notes to your recent article uh, talking about this, and and any other references that you'd like um, folks to have access to. Um, but let's just start very basically. Um, you mentioned uh, TPN, uh, so total parental nutrition. Mm-hmm. Some some places refer to it as CPN or central um, peripheral nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, of course, there's enteral nutrition. So st- starting very basically, can you just tell me what those two are and, w- and what the difference between them is?
0: Sure, of course. So total parental nutrition, as you mentioned, Jed, is is IV nutrition. It's where w- we as the care team don't feel that the gut or, or, for various reasons, the patient can tolerate um, having food or feeding go into their gut. Uh, and so we can give it intravenously. Of course, we always prefer when we can to use use the gut and to feed to the gut, and, and often we have to do that in our sick, intubated patients or, or, or just even our sick surgery or other medical patients. We have to feed through a feeding tube. The patient's unable to, to orally take in enough, and so we place a tube into the stomach or sometimes beyond the stomach into the duodenum. Um, we call that postpyloric feeding, uh, and we give tube feeds or or complete nutrition formulas that deliver nutrition into the gut um, in that way. And so we we prefer intro feeding, I think, as first line. One, it's less expensive. Two, it it tends, we believe, to uh, signal some anti-inflammatory and and beneficial process to the body. We think it preserves the microbiome better, um, which is another piece of my research that I've become interested in. So we, we do think that's important. And and we think it overall is better for the intestinal barrier and for the for the health of the mucosal cell. But that isn't always possible, and so sometimes we have to use TPN. And I think one key message, Jennifer, I can leave with people is I think there's been a hesitancy to use TPN in in recent years, or in our training, we've been taught that because of this pre-existing risk of infection that we thought it cured with it. And I think one key thing the listeners can take home that I think a lot of us weren't taught is there've been now multiple, more than four major trials in big journals we've heard of, like New England Journal, Lancet, and JAMA, that have demonstrated in many thousands of ICU patients there is no risk of infection from TPN versus intral nutrition um, when given to critically ill patients. I I think a lot of changes have happened over the years in how we do TPN. We've line infections, we treat hyperglycemia, we're just better at it. Um, and so I would advocate to people there is no more risk of giving TPN through a central line to your ICU patient than there is giving saline through your central line to your right. ICU patient. I think we starve patients because we fear adding TPN when we really shouldn't. And if internal nutrition is not possible, then I think people should be willing to go to TPN. But I think often internal nutrition is possible and we need to take right. advantage so,
1: of it. So, uh, you know, let me ask you one thing that I've, I'm curious about. And I don't know the answer at all. Uh, if we're going to give yeah. enteral nutrition uh, – and I mean this is a little bit of yeah. a false uh, you know, proposal here because obviously you probably wouldn't – you would never make this choice. But let's just say that you could either give someone food that they could chew and swallow or you could give it through an OG yeah. tube into their stomach directly. It, do we know if there's actually any advantage to the, the process of the chewing and swallowing in terms of the some of the things you talked about and, and the um, – uh, you know, inflammatory mediation and the uh, microbiome, or is it really just the the enteral is what's important? What no matter how it gets into the stomach.
0: So that's a great question, and and, and of course, the reality is those kinds of studies in in the sick patients we care for really haven't been done. Um, we would we would postulate, perhaps there is. We, you know, we do think there's probably some benefit to a diversity in one's diet, um, and of course, there's things that are in different kinds of foods that we can't measure or aren't even aware of that are difficult to put into an artificial feeding uh, formula. And so we, we do think there probably is some benefit. Uh, that is not well described. Now, the oral microbiome is another key piece, probably leads to some of the cognitive mm-hmm. dysfunction that we see in association with Alzheimer's. We're beginning to show in cognitive dysfunction. And um, And there's data that goes all the way back to um, Sweden in the 1800s to show that people who were found to lose teeth middle of their life got more Alzheimer's later in life because of changes in the inflammatory process within the oral microbiome, we think. So there probably is something to it. Um, We just haven't gotten that far to study it, and it's very difficult, of course, in our sicker ICU patients to be able to do it. But I I would leave your – say your medical students that are learning maybe their first bit of nutrition here – with the thought that, yes, eating a diverse, healthy diet of non-processed foods and fruits and vegetables is probably always better if you can eat and chew it. It just is very difficult
1: in the IC process to do that. Right. Absolutely. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Mm So, you know, you mentioned that uh, we really are, are wanting to move away from what we believed for quite some time, which was that, you know, uh, TPN really should uh, had a lot of dangers specifically around infection and so you know we really wanted to avoid it and and actually that you might want to even give a patient no nutrition rather than expose them to the dangers of TPN and that we're you know there's good data to suggest that that's maybe not the case and so you know what is your practice what do you recommend for folks and and given that of course people need to go by their own hospital's guidelines but uh, in terms of if a patient cannot take uh, any any anything by mouth yes. um, when is it important to start nutrition? Is the answer as early as possible? Is, uh, is there a certain amount of time of, of starvation that's kind of okay and you would start after a certain amount of time? Um, and, and I guess let's address that by both enteral. Uh, if a patient can take enteral feeds, should mm-hmm. we be starting you know post-op day zero? If they, can take, if they cannot get enteral feeds and they need TPN, should we also be starting that immediately or should we wait a little bit of time? I think the, the common teaching is about a week Before starting TPN, and then if they still can't take enteral feeds, to start TPN. But but maybe that should be changing. Tell me what you think.
0: So that's a great question. I think that's the million dollar question in 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 ICU and surgical nutrition. And I think what we need to be better at, and what really is going to lead to the answer to this question, is is how we're going to define and predict the nutrition risk of the patient, that particular patient that we're treating. The ASPEN SCCM guidelines do state that in well-nourished patients, a period of five to seven days is totally reasonable likely if you're unable to feed orally or intrally, to wait to start TBN. The unfortunate reality is is somewhere between 30 and 50% of every patient that enters any hospital anywhere in the world is malnourished by definition, at least by the classic definitions we use of weight loss and lack of oral intake and, and other measures like that. They're malnourished at baseline. And those patients, our guidelines would say, should start internal nutrition or oral nutrition the day after surgery, the day they hit the ICU. And if they can't start oral or internal nutrition, they should get TPN. And so there's clearly not that many people getting TPN in any of our hospitals. And so there is a large segment of patients who are malnourished and we do feel would benefit from TPN that aren't getting it because of there's a fundamental challenge to identifying patients at nutrition risk. And I think for the medical students and even the physicians who maybe haven't had nutrition training, the number one question, at least for the moment, we can ask patients is, have you lost weight in the last three to six months? And if they have lost more than 10% of their body weight, um, they're at real malnutrition risk. And if you add that to a Patients who haven't eaten enough, less than 50% of their normal diet for more than five days, or let's say they've been NPO for a number of days because they've been sick, um, that actually triggers a severe malnutrition diagnosis in the chart. And those are patients that should be started immediately. And so this is all difficult to implement. And so we're actually in the process of writing a grant to the NIH to study some novel ways to address malnutrition. One is using the Nutrix score, the, or the Nutrix score, which is a nutrition risk score that Darren Hyland developed. And, and we hope to have the chance to study that as a way to identify patients who should get early nutrition. The other piece we're being to look at is muscle mass measured by ultrasound at the bedside. Um, there's a muscle-specific ultrasound device that we work with huh. uh, that we've got some data from a pilot trial we did for the NIH that shows that patients with low muscle mass, um, low muscle thickness, appear to benefit from early TPN in quality of life measures like functional outcomes, ability to do activities of daily living and other measures um, more than patients who have more muscle mass. And so we think someday one's actual muscle mass or sarcopenia may be the objective trigger that we've looked for for many years to help us. But I think until then, the identification of malnutrition by weight loss in particular should be something we all should be doing on a regular basis with all of our patients and the ones that have that real risk. And there's a substantial number. um, In GI surgery, it's two out of every three having major GI surgery are true malnutrition risk, um, those patients should get started sooner.
1: Okay, interesting. And as soon, it sounds like, as possible. So that could be, yes. you know, post-op day one. It could be. It could be. So, well, and, and then this may seem obvious, but what are some of the, uh, you know, downsides to starvation? So what happens with patients who don't uh, get nutrition, whether that's patients who are not malnourished and go more than five to seven days or patients who are malnourished and, and go, you know, any, any amount of time, what are the downsides to not getting nutrition?
0: Sure. And I think this comes back to the reality that in the ICU, and, and from surgery, of course, as we know, too, but in the ICU in particular, we have significantly reduced the mortality in our patients. We're very good at supporting organ function and recovering organ failure. But what, what we don't have the ability to do is give people their lives back. And I, the question I always ask my residents is, are we creating survivors or are we creating victims in the ICU? And and that is, are we creating people that have a real quality of life after ICU? I think Jack at Michigan has said this next great challenge in critical illness is, is survivorship. Is We can have people live through their illness, but are they really surviving? And he said survivorship is the greatest challenge for the future of our, our specialty. Sure. And I think that's really true. And I think getting to your question about malnutrition, what happens, we know, is in the first 10 days, amount a significant amount of lean body mass and muscle mass is lost. And although we can't fully stop that, the body needs to be catabolic in the face of a major injury or stress, whether that's surgery or sepsis, Um, it does appear we can slow it. And then as patients recover, uh, we know that there's this phase of increased caloric needs that happen after ICU. This is where us making sure patients are fed on the floor after leaving the ICU is probably essential that none of our studies have addressed at this point. We hope to do that soon. But they actually have caloric requirements that go up considerably as the body begins to have a chance to recover muscle mass. Um, And so I I think throughout the care pathway, this loss of muscle mass is essential. The other thing that prolonged malnutrition does, and CBVH does this as well, CBVH is the greatest malnutrition maker in the ICU, I will tell you, Hmm. um, is patients lose essential vitamins and micronutrients, trace elements that can cause substantial and often sometimes permanent um, deficits for patients. So we know patients on CVVH more than a week, 70% of them in our data, at least, that we're going to publish soon are copper deficient. Interesting. Copper is a problem because you can become severely pancytopenic from copper. So the patient that appears with pancytopenia in your ICU who's on CVVH, the first thing that's coming to your mind is copper deficiency. I've seen it multiple times here at Duke. We have a lot of very sick CTICU patients who are on CVVH for months. Wow. The other thing that can happen that we know from the bariatric surgery literature is people who have prolonged copper deficiency, and this can be weeks or months, um, will get permanent neuromuscular weakness where you can see lesions in their spinal column on MRI. And some of those become irreversible. And of course, ICU-acquired weakness is a multifactorial process. But we wonder if some percentage of these patients are getting this permanent weakness that Margaret Herridge describes so well. Because of deficits in these micronutrients, B six is another. B six levels go to zero very quickly on CBVH, usually after a week or two, it can cause profound encephalopathy. I've seen patients get multiple CT scans for what they think is a stroke, and their B six level zero. You give them a few
1: cents worth of B six, they wake up the next wow. day. So copper and, and B six so, are big things that uh, I don't think we we talk about very much.
0: Never, and and I've never seen them published actually, and I have not even known they were happening until I came to a place like Duke that does a lot of long term CBVH. Um, I actually discovered this in a patient, a burn patient in Colorado when I was there working the burn unit, 95% burn, who was on CBVH for a year. And he had a number of complications, including life-threatening pancytopenia, had a copper level of zero. He began to lose weight suddenly halfway through his care, even though his feeding was good. He was completely carnitine deficient. Carnitine is wasted by CBVH as well. As soon as we gave him his carnitine back, he recovered his oh. weight. And then he became B6 deficient in the process as well. And so I, I really learned most of this from taking care of one particular patient. I'll never forget he survived and walked out of the hospital a year later. Um, and, and so I, I learned a lot. Now I'm looking for it. And now I'm starting to see it. And so we have a small grant we just received to study this and try to publish these findings.
1: Well, that'll be really interesting to see. So you said, you mentioned that, you know, patients as they're starting to recover from critical illness, surgery, et cetera, uh, need uh, increased calories. So if they're not getting it uh, either, cause they're not getting sufficient or maybe they're not getting anything. Right. Um, we're, we're talking about a uh, lack of wound healing, weakness, um, yeah. so, uh, depending on the, the nutrients that are missing, they may have some of the, um, you know, uh, Issues that you mentioned that uh, presumably happen with prolonged CVVH, but I would imagine could happen with prolonged starvation as well. Definitely can. Um, We see it. And
0: and when I suspect malnutrition, my general ICU population, not on CVVH, 40% are copper deficient. Almost everyone's vitamin D deficient. And then the immune system, I think the last piece is the immune system depends on amino acids to function. T cells depend on arginine and other key nutrients to be able to uh, function properly especially amino acids, and so if someone becomes very muscle-wasted, their ability to heal wounds and mount immune response becomes seriously depleted.
1: Okay, interesting. So let's turn now uh, to one of the concerns that you have addressed and that we hear about quite a lot, which is uh, one of the major reasons patients are not started on at least enteral nutrition uh, in the ICU, which is uh, if they are on pressors. So patients who are on significant amounts of pressors, or maybe on any pressors, is often a reason not to do it. So uh, tell me about that. What is the concern about starting entrophies in patients on pressors?
0: So I think th- there's always been longstanding concern about starting patients who are getting vasopressors and particularly vasoconstrictors because of the fear of non occlusive bowel necrosis, so the gut not getting enough blood flow. Uh, we know that feeding the gut, giving food in, or, or giving nu- nutrients into the gut does increase the oxygen demand and oxygen consumption of the intestine and the intestinal cell. And sort of the underlying physiologic or pathophysiologic concern is, is in states of lower gut blood flow and oxygen delivery, and of course the body tends to shunt blood away from the gut and into other vital organs when it's in shock, that uh, ne- bowel necrosis or, or bowel ischemia can occur. And so... That's always been the, the fear, although the, the data, at least for lower dose vasopressors, does not always back that up, because there's also some some data showing, of course, especially animal models, that um, feeding actually improves gut blood flow and actually leads to gut blood flow being being increased in the states of feeding. so there's there's conundrum that exists.
1: right, okay, so uh, well this let me just turn to this for one sec. What about TPN, is there any reason to think that TPN uh, increases the risk of uh, uh, to, of gut ischemia?
0: No, not that we can see, and, and there was just a large study, the Nutria-2 trial in, in, in France looked at this kind of question, it was a large randomized trial of patients early in shock getting randomized to TPN or oral nutrition. And these patients were on quite high doses of vasopressors, the average, the mean dose was above .5 mics per kilo per minute. Uh,
1: nor um, epinephrine. Yes,
0: yeah, so okay. so higher than most of us would feed anything to anyone on, right. whether it be TPN or EN. And, and what they found was the EN group did have a significant increase in bowel ischemia. It was still a low rate, but it still was an increase in bowel versus the TPN group. And there was more colonic pseudo-obstruction in that group that got intralutrition versus TPN as well. So we don't have concerns, although I, I will say that in a patient who's unstable, who has an elevated lactate, who's not resuscitated perhaps um, to the full extent – Feeding of any sort is likely contraindicated. Mervin Singer is, is a good friend and, and someone I really look up to. He's quite a wise critical care physiologist, especially when it comes to the mitochondria, and and he, his teaching will tell you that when someone's in septic shock, their mitochondria are hibernating, and the body's not looking to utilize a lot of substrate. In fact, resting energy expenditure will go down in septic shock, not up, mm. and and so. I think most of us that think all day about the mitochondria and, and feeding would say someone who's unstable and in shock um, probably should not be fed either way. Okay. And and I think awaiting resuscitation or at least you know a normalizing a normal lactate or normalizing lactate, um, reducing vasopressors and and a reasonable mixed venous oxygen. Uh, is is a sign that now we can begin to consider feeding either by the intro or parental route. I, I think if someone in shock, I would avoid both routes or, or stay with very minimal trophic feeding of some sort. We do trophic TPN. I will tell you, my RDs and I sometimes will, will run very low, especially calorie and just bring the protein up a bit. Um, TPN bags, there's sort of these trophic protein containing TPN bags at times. But Probably any meaningful nutrition in shock state is not, not recommended.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I heard a really interesting uh, grand rounds years ago, but uh, that and I wish I could remember who was giving it, but talking about how, you know, if you look at human evolution, the body is adapted in times of severe uh, illness to be anorexic. I mean, that is what we're supposed to do. And the idea of kind of forcing nutrition uh, into someone who, uh, you know, has evolved to not receive it at that time may, may be a bad idea.
0: I absolutely agree. I think that's a great analogy. I use the caveman analogy all the time with the residents. And I say, you know, if you were a big, healthy caveman and got bit by the saber tooth tiger, you were not gathering food for the first few days. Right. The problem is, of course, in modern ICU and surgical care, um, we actually have you live more than a few days. If you were the caveman, and you didn't get up and start gathering food in three days. Your tribe left you and you died because you couldn't run, you couldn't walk and they weren't going to carry you. Right um, we aren't really evolved to survive much more than the 48 hours to 72 hours of the critical hours of trauma. We sometimes call them. We don't have nutritional reserves that go beyond that. And the more well-nourished we are, the more muscle mass we have, I think the longer the reserves we have are, the more malnourished we are, we think the shorter that period is. And that's why we advocate feeding sooner in those patients. Right.
1: That makes a lot of sense. All right. So, um, you mentioned that probably, you know, so let's move away from the, the extremely sick, unstable patient and let's just take a patient who, Normal lactate. Uh, they uh, they're you know just on that that last you know they're still on some pressors, but but the stable dose you know maybe they're on 0.04 of norepinephrine 0.04 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine. Um, you mentioned that low dose is probably fine. So wh- well, I guess we should first say what is low dose. Uh, I mean you you already said we well, you know we want someone who's not doesn't have those signs of ongoing instability like a, an elevated lactate, but is there a certain dose of norepinephrine or other pressors that, uh, you know, we would count as low dose for the purposes of feeling okay about giving enteral nutrition?
0: There is, and there's just some very recent literature, um, some older literature, but I think there's a really important recent study that begins to look at the different dose ranges that we think about pressors in um, and looked at this question in a very elegant uh, sort of health outcomes, large database way. The studies was just published in the last year that looked at 52,000 critically ill patients, matched them via propensity score matching, and they looked at three groups. They looked at patients getting low vasopressor doses below 0.1 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine equivalents, medium doses 0.1 to 0.3 of norepinephrine equivalents, or high dose greater than 0.3. And what they found was that patients who received early enteral nutrition in the low or medium dose, so less than 0.1 or 0.1 to 0.3, actually had lower 28-day mortality than patients who didn't get fed. And so that seemed to imply that there was a benefit to be had in that group. In the high-dose norepinephrine group, there was no difference in mortality. And so they suggested perhaps this was a signal that we ought to be considering feeding our patients um, on lower doses of norepinephrine. That was backed up by, I think, the original study to look at this years ago that looked at a group of patients, Khaled and authors, looked at about 1,200 patients, 700 of whom got early initial nutrition, 467 didn't. And the patients who got pressors, um, all the patients got pressors, sorry, in the study, the patients on early initial nutrition had lower mortality even when they controlled for all their confounders and did multivariate modeling the patients who got vasopressors did uh, and got early nutrition had lower mortalities. And in fact, if you were on two agents, it even was a bigger effect. And so there is some hint that in these patients, and again, none of us would advocate the unstable patient getting internal nutrition, but these patients on these persistent low doses of vasopressors, and I, my practice is around 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. It's you know, the data implies maybe up to 0.3 is safe. And in the paper, I, I mentioned that in the table. Uh, I, I will tell you my practice is if you're on less than 0.1 um, and all those other things are normal lactates, normal mixed venous is reasonable. And we feel like you're resuscitated. I feel very comfortable feeding. In fact, I think it is beneficial, especially to provide trophic feeds to those patients. Um, I think at the higher doses, we can't feel as good. And, and it also might imply that they aren't really quite resuscitated yet.
1: Right. All right. I think that's really great and helpful. Um, and as, as I said, we'll put the link to the article that you mentioned has that table in there. Um, yeah. So uh, there, you also mentioned in, the, in your article that different vasopressors may actually have different effects. And that's pretty interesting. Tell me a little bit more about that. What, it, you know, Are certain pressors safer uh, in terms of starting enteral nutrition?
0: Yeah, there's a there's a fair bit of animal research um, and some limited observational human research that do say there seems to be a difference in the pressure you give and what splenic blood flow is and potentially then what would be safe in terms of delivering in nutrition to a patient. And so there's been some nice papers looking at this. And it seems like norepinephrine and or norepinephrine-dobetamine combinations appear to be better at providing splenic blood flow. Um, And then phenylephrine kind of falls in that same group. So norepinephrine, norepinephrine, dobutamine, and phenylephrine all, all seem to have similar characteristics in having the least effects or least negative effects on splenic blood flow. Epinephrine seems a little worse, and then vasopressin and dopamine seem to be the least good or the worst for perfusion to the gut. And we feel that are most likely to cause problems with slightly blood flow and the potential for bowel necrosis. Now, um, those of us of a certain age will remember before vasopressor was used as a vasopressor agent in sepsis and in cardiac surgery, um, it was used to stop GI bleeds. It's exceptionally good at a little bit higher doses than we give at squeezing off the gut altogether. Right. And so, in fact, it was in the middle of my residency. It was when I was a CA2, CA3 that suddenly vasopressin appeared in the heart room as this new wonder presser, right. um, where before all of us kind of looked at it and said, boy, you'd never give that to anyone except for when they were dying of a GI bleed. And so, of course, we know that due to vasopressin deficiency in sepsis patients that was discovered, but um, it's very good at squeezing out the gut. And the, and the data that's looked at them comparatively seems to reflect that.
1: All right. That's really interesting. So, uh, let me turn for a minute. Uh, you mentioned in your article that any period of starvation can cause intestinal dysbiosis. Um, and so I, I imagine, but tell me exactly, that that means an alteration in the gut biome, as you said, the microbiome of the gut, mm-hmm. which is something that you're, you're spending some time looking at. Um, is that correct? That's what we're talking about?
0: Yeah, definitely. So we have become keenly interested in um, what the role of the microbiome and who we are as humans, but especially critically ill or sick humans, um, is we, we know that um, we 're about fifty percent or even a little bit less than fifty percent human cells, and we 're about fifty percent microbiome cells and then people say, "Well, if you think about what makes us human, it 's our, our genetics, our, our genome that makes us human well, we're about ninety nine percent bacterial genes." If you look at our body and about 1% human genes. So, so, that's pretty there's striking. a considerable yeah. part of who we are that's made up of by our microbiome. And in fact, some some very basic parts of who we are seem to be affected by that, including, you know, if you ever wonder why you get bit by mosquitoes and your loved ones don't when you go into the woods, it's, it isn't because you're sweeter, it's because the microbiome that lives on your skin attracts or repels mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, in fact, the toxicity of Tylenol and other drugs has got more to do with. The microbiome and how it processes those drugs in your gut, perhaps, and even the doses in many cases. And we actually know that mating choices, at least in fruit flies, are determined by the gut microbiome more than by anything else that predicts mating preferences. And if we discover that's true in humans, that will be shocking. But yeah. um, it's true in fruit flies for sure. So there's a lot of of who we are. In fact, I think the most impressive thing is if you take the stool from an obese human and give it to a mouse that's never seen bacteria from its birth, germ-free mice, um, the mouse becomes obese all by itself. And they're doing twin-to-twin fecal transplants now as part of an NIH pilot to look to see if you take stool from a thin twin and transplant it into an obese person, obese twin, if they lose weight, because that is definitely true in mice. You can definitely do that. Wow,
1: that's fascinating stuff. So, Messing with that uh, microbiome by, uh, through starvation, um, does that have, do we know if that has uh, negative consequences for patients, or we just uh, assume in general that, that messing around with the microbiome is not a good idea?
0: So, so we know that even one day of starvation in a normal human can begin to derange the microbiome, and you can lose diversity. And so what you want, I think that the unifying message for people who are new to the microbiome is you want diversity. Um, so a diverse microbiome is a healthy microbiome. You don't want one or two or three species predominating. Normally you have many, many species of all different sorts and sort of reasonably equal levels. Um, What we found, we we did the first multi-center critical illness microbiome study a number of years ago and published it. It was the ICU Microbiome Project. We did it with Rob Knight's group who did the American Gut Project. And we found that within 48 hours of ICU admission, there is a dramatic loss of diversity of the microbiome that is consistent across all different ICUs. And that within a few days, in fact, you can have 95% of the bacteria taxa in your gut be one species, where normally there are many, many species at varying levels. We saw that things like Enterobacter and Acinetobacter and and some of these bugs, can take over the gut in in its entirety. Um, And this seems to correlate with longer lengths of stay, ARDS, um, other adverse outcomes in patients that we don't want. Interesting. and so we, we know that feeding appears to be able to preserve that, and we're still going through that data, but other studies have shown clearly that starvation leads to the loss of that. Of course, the other big offender is micro is, is antibiotic use, right? We studied or collected data on 150 patients, and we could not find a single patient that was on a ventilator more than 48 hours in a U.S. or Canadian center that didn't get antibiotics. Yeah. So they are a universal part of intensive right. care now. There's no way you can get into ICUs and not get them, it appears, um, and be an event. And so we tried to tease out the effect. So the oral microbiome loses diversity too, and that does seem to be related to the antibiotic pressure. We, there's published antibiotic pressure scores we adapted for the ICU from a Lancet publication. Um, the oral microbiome changes seem to relate to antibiotics. The gut microbiome changes do not. Okay. They seem to be independent of the antibiotics given. And we're trying to tease out data that say that may be related to feeding or non-feeding in those patients and there's some hints it's due to lack of intral feeding interesting and so that does seem to play a role
1: okay so that's really interesting stuff too and we'll look forward to hearing more about that as you continue to look into it um so one of the other things that that comes up is um that crystalloid resuscitation certainly um large volume resuscitation can also uh lead to gut hypoperfusion is that right
0: Absolutely. And I I think those of us that are anesthesiologists know that that this enhanced recovery after surgery movement that has led to shorter length of stays and improved surgical outcomes, one of the key features it hinges on is is not over-resuscitating or giving too much crystalloid fluid to a GI surgery patient. And, And one of the things, of course, that keeps a GI surgery patient in the hospital is lack of return of bowel function. And there's data that's growing rapidly that shows that patients who get too much crystalloid fluid in the operating room have bowel edema that leads to bowel dysfunction and leads to ileuses and nausea and vomiting and poor recovery of bowel function. That's what keeps people in the hospital. Well, of course, we believe that's true in the ICU as well. And so much like ARDS can be linked to even getting an extra thousand cc's of crystalloid fluid and ARDS rates go up. We, we are believing that that's likely true in the gut as well. The, the patients who get uh, additional, two, an additional too much uh, crystalloid fluid also will have much more bowel dysfunction like we see in the surgery patients, and that can impair our ability to feed. So I think it's not just the lung that suffers, but the gut that suffers as well.
1: Right. And do you think that some of the – uh, studies that have shown, for example, uh, patients on higher dose pressors who maybe have higher rates of mesenteric ischemia when started on in enteral nutrition, is it possible that those patients have received a lot of fluid in an attempt to get them off pressors or down on their pressors, and that then they're started on enteral nutrition and and they develop mesenteric ischemia, which they would have developed anyway because of the fluid, and it just looks like it's the fault of the enteral nutrition.
0: Absolutely, I think that's definitely something that all of us believe is likely occurring in some of these patients, and it's a balance that must be struck. Clearly, in a patient on high dose of vasopressor, there's have to be a, there has to be appropriate resuscitation, but but again, I think sometimes that becomes over resuscitation, and and then you can put the gut at risk from under resuscitation and under perfusion, but you can put the gut at risk from severe edema as well. And there, like there is in the lung, there's a balance that has to be struck.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, there are at least some European, um, uh, guidelines, uh, from 2017, mm-hmm. um, which suggest, uh, in terms of early enteral nutrition in critically ill patients, that it should be delayed, uh, for patients with uncontrolled shock, hypoxemia, acidosis, GI bleeds, bowel ischemia, bowel obstruction, abdominal compartment syndrome, and high output fistulas. Um, so uh, is that uh, we've talked obviously about unstable patients. Do you think all of those things uh, are, are sort of make sense to include in terms of unstable patients? And are there also does that jive with with your with United States guidelines?
0: It does. I think I think that's probably a worldwide universal feeling that those those patients you describe are the people that we really are having to think critically about when and how early we start feeding, and I think, Patients need to be resuscitated. Patients need to have adequate blood flow. The high-output fistula, right, feeding that patient can be a disaster because their fluid losses can be massive. And the GI fistula patient the other patient that can lose a lot of Micronutrients, trace elements, and vitamins and become very deficient very quickly. The bowel will lose them across the bowel wall in large output GI fistulas and high output diarrhea patients. And so, again, nutrient deficiencies can occur very rapidly. They're the other people that get copper and carnitine and other deficiencies very quickly. And so they, they need to be treated carefully. And they're the patients we often end up with early TPN on because they're often malnourished as well.
1: Right. And, you know, I meant to ask you before um, do we routinely um, put copper in tpn
0: very small amounts. so the most all tpns at least in the u.s um, have a trace element and uh, multivitamin additive in them that's what gives the bag the yellow color actually Mm -hmm. if you ever wondered why tpn was yellow that's why Uh, it's a limited amount though there's a very small amount of copper that typically can be added to tpn it has interactions and solubility challenges um, in, in, its, in its state. So you can only put so much in. So when we're repleting copper, say, in a CBVH patient, um, even if they're on TPN, we often are administering the copper intravenously as a separate infusion. Okay. Uh, the B6 the C1, is a separate infusion. Uh, it can also – copper gluconate is a very efficient – we just added it to the formula here at Duke because of this problem. Copper gluconate is a very efficient way to give it intrally, uh, And so it can be given intrally in patients who will tolerate that as well. Um, some of the things you can add to TPN quite nicely are vitamin C, for instance, we, everybody's on a thousand milligrams of vitamin C in their TPN in our ICU and carnitine. So carnitine can be given outside of TPN, but carnitine is very easy to give in TPN and pretty much anybody on CVVH for the first week, we give 600 milligrams of carnitine. And then we drop back to 300. We found that will maintain even people on very high aggressive CVVH, um,
1: renal replacement therapy. Great. All right. So putting it all together, uh, Mm -hmm. I imagine, and I think you even said your practice is definitely to, uh, patients who are stable, but still on at least a low dose. So less than 0.1, uh, per kilo per minute of, of norepinephrine, um, you would surely be comfortable starting on enteral nutrition. And is that, uh, we, you, are you confident that we have sufficient, you know, high grade evidence to support that practice?
0: Hmm, high grade evidence, and as in randomized controlled trial data, I, I don't, we don't have level one evidence of that. That study has not been done. Okay. So I, I'm not willing to go to the grade one level, you know, the grade one level of evidence that we talk about when we talk about um, other interventions in critical illness. I think this would be a difficult study to do. You know, getting a group, a cohort of patients that would fit into this mold would be challenging, although an interesting study to do nonetheless. I do think, though, there is enough observational data, and I I always encourage my residents and and young attendings to do this themselves. I encourage them to read the data, um, not just take any of our words for it, but actually look what happens. And that's what we've tried to summarize in this paper in Credo Care Medicine. I've tried to summarize the data that exists. Um, And and I'm compelled from the data that exists. It's it's very consistent. Um, It shows a very consistent signal, even in very large observational trials of large sort of unselected populations to some degree. And and I think there is a reasonable signal in the physiology. I think the physiology needs to match and then the observational data and patients need to match for us to feel good about it. And and there's reasonable data that norepinephrine, even at lower doses, will increase splenic blood flow and, and like even phenylephrine has been able to show it increases splenic like oxygen extraction. So these drugs actually may do some things that improve oxygen extraction and oxygen delivery to the gut in reasonable doses in a resuscitated patient. So I do feel fairly confident, not to the grade one level evidence that some of our literature has, but that, that patients can be fed. And I think the risks of starvation, especially in a malnourished patient, and the risks of the microbiome changing and the permeability of the gut changing and the other risks that go with not feeding patients outweigh the potential risks of feeding the low dose pressure patient, given that most of the data, almost all of the data swings to benefit of early feeding, early right. into nutrition in lower doses of vasopressor. So you have a positive clinical outcome signal, you have a positive physiological benefit signal, um, and we don't have many signals at the lower doses of harm. And so I think the, the, the benefit outweighs the risks that occur from not feeding. And I, I think some of this goes back to the burning, right? If you wait a day to feed a burn patient, you won't feed them at all. And if you feed them in the first 24 hours, you'll feed them for a month until perhaps they get septic. And so ileus, right. begets gets ileus. And the longer we feed, the less successful we will be. And so I think starting some trophic feeds in that patient who's resuscitated on the low doses of vasopressors is going to affect how you feed for the next week or two of their stay potentially. And that's more common than I think people
1: realize. Right. I, absolutely. Now, you had mentioned before you think this would be, be a very challenging randomized trial to do. Do you think we'll see it? Is that kind of anywhere in the works, or do you think we just are going to have what we have?
0: Good question. You know, I, I think the way this trial could happen, and, and we, we hope we're successful in maybe getting funding for this, but be, making it work is if we can find ways to identify the truly high-risk, critically ill patient, high-nutrition risk when I say that, who... We feel strongly will benefit from early nutrition, whether it be enteral or parenteral. The idea that you could target a population like that, that you have a good suspicion of benefit of an early nutrition intervention being present, then look at those patients on pressors versus feeding them, and then versus not feeding them. That would be an interesting way to do the study. I think the very key takeaway that i want people to take from the existing icu nutrition literature and it is fairly large now it didn't used to be but it is is that every trial done to date has treated every icu patient like they have the same malnutrition risk and they've treated them with the same nutrition strategy no matter what that risk is and so the idea that we can treat every patient like they're the same doesn't work in any other part of how we do critical illness realistically and so and and so i i would advocate it Why would anyone think it would work in nutrition either? So all these trials that exist now, the large ones, the EDEN trial, the EPNIC trial, the the early PN trial from Australia, all these trials that have been done have not at all tried to select meaningfully for a truly malnourished patient. Um, And so I think it's hard to extrapolate um, the data. The average BMIs of all the trials that have been done is about 28, except for the PN trial, the early PN trial from Switzerland had a BMI about 25, and that trial showed benefit on infection and some other clinical outcomes. So interestingly, the trial that had the lowest BMI, potentially the surrogate for the highest nutrition risk, seemed to have benefit. And so I think most of these trials have targeted the people with the least nutrition risk um, in many cases. And so we need to do trials, and that's what our research group is really focused on in targeting and finding scores and or ultrasound techniques, CT scan techniques to target the patients that are likely to benefit most. And that's where a vasopressor early feeding trial, I think, meaningfully could be done with some expectation of a difference.
1: Interesting. All right. Well, that'll be great to see if it, if it happens, and I hope it does. Um, I want to just point out and emphasize one thing that you said before that I think is is so important, which is that, you know, the, the data would suggest that at least the low dose, uh, meaning up to and, and less than 0.1 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine, uh may may actually and probably does actually increase uh or may improve uh, blood flow to the gut and i think that's important not just when it comes to thinking about enteral nutrition but when we right. have surgeons who are saying you know i don't want you to use levofed or norepinephrine because uh because of my anastomoses right mm-hmm. and i don't, and i'm worried about blood flow to those anastomoses uh but but you know what i always tell my residents is if instead we're going to give a ton of fluid Right, then we're going to cause more problems that way that low dose norepinephrine is probably going to help perfuse those anastomoses.
0: Absolutely. Uh, absolutely right. I mean oxygen delivery is is a combination of, of a number of factors, of course, and clearly if if you're just going to pour fluid and and have significant tissue edema, that's going to impair oxygen delivery, like you just said perhaps more than even ensuring oxygen delivery with low-dose pressers, which does seem physiologically to have maybe even, like you said, improve oxygen delivery and even oxygen uptake from the gut. So I think it's a, a difficult concept for some people to grasp, but it's an important one. Great. Great.
1: So, Paul, this has been fantastic. Is there anything um, uh, on this topic that we didn't cover that you really think is important you want to leave uh, with our listeners?
0: no i I think the last thought I would, I would leave with the listeners um, as they as they practice in their ICUs every day and, and are learning the specialty um, and we're all learning every day is is I think the most important thing you can do is is be cognizant of your patient's nutrition risk and make a conscious effort to ensure that you are screening for malnutrition and in the malnourished patient you are pushing for feed sooner you are starting TPN sooner H- Have something in your mind that tells you. This patient's at malnutrition risk. You know, I have, and I see now with various Whipples and, and different pancreatitis and other surgery patients who lost great deals of weight before their surgery. Some of them lost 40, 50 pounds. Uh-huh. And some of them I'm watching go three, five, seven days not being fed, and they weren't given preoperative nutrition to optimize them just because that this isn't a concept that's taken hold, but they're having, of course, very difficult complications, we believe, because of it. And these are people that we can make a difference in by recognizing them early and treating them before they have surgery, perhaps in some cases, but ensuring, at least when they end up in RICUs, that we are starting TPN sooner, we are starting into nutrition sooner, and we're recognizing this in the great hope, right, that someday we'll create survivors of all of our patients that go back to lives where they hold their grandchildren again and walk down the streets with the people they love. Um, And nutrition can help make that difference.
1: Absolutely. You know, that, that actually reminded me of one other question I wanted to ask, which is, you know, when we think about this weight loss, uh, preoperative weight loss as a, a screen, uh, you sometimes mm-hmm. hear people say, oh, well, yes, yeah, they lost weight, but they were way overweight first. Is that, yeah. uh, you know, what I've been taught, and I want to ask you, uh, that that, that actually is not a good, that's not good reasoning, that someone who was, you know, ex- they may be obese, uh, they but the fact that they lost weight Uh, does not mean uh, that because they were obese and now they're less obese that they're now somehow protected and can go longer without nutrition. Is that accurate? That's
0: absolutely accurate. Unintentional weight loss in any way, shape, or form, no matter what the starting weight, is a significant risk factor for adverse outcomes in surgery and, and likely in all other areas, cancer and other areas of healthcare, ICU included. And so, I'm not really interested in what the initial weight was. What I'm interested in is how much they lose unintentionally. And if that is 5% in in less than a month or within a few weeks, or if that's 10% within six months, that's meaningful. And again, remember that a large proportion of the obese population are sarcopenic, right? They have a very large fat mass, but they have a very low muscle mass. And we really think it's the muscle that's the metabolic reserve. And when one gets cancer, has chronic infections or pancreatitis, The body's mobilizing that muscle to get those amino acids to fuel the immune system. So they're losing muscle rapidly. Uh And in fact, a Journal of Clinical Investigation classic paper from the 90s showed that actually obese patients have a harder time using their endogenous lipid stores than thin patients do. And that's one of the reasons they become obese in the first place. So when they're stressed, they actually have a harder time utilizing that fat calorie mass they have than those patients who are thin and so they're utilizing muscle. We believe even faster. Interesting. All right. And so they're maybe who we should be most most afraid worried of. about. Yeah,
1: absolutely. All right, that's yeah. really important. So uh, I should have warned you about this up front, but we uh, do at this portion of our show a um, random recommendation. So I ask. Uh, the guest, and I'll ask you to think about something you would just unrelated to, to work, or it could be at least something maybe you've read or listened yeah. to recently, uh, some food you've cooked or ate that you really are interested <laughs> in, something you'd recommend to listeners if they are, you know, out this weekend and looking for something to do, eat, think about, read, um, mm-hmm. anything on your mind you would uh, make a random recommendation about. Hmm. and I'll, I'll tell you what since i didn't warn you up front i'll go first and you can think so okay. i am yeah. going to recommend uh there's a new uh brand new actually just first episode just came out i think a day or two ago uh podcast yeah. from anesthesiology news uh it's called the etherist uh-huh. and they are doing a yes. short it's I, I think it's gonna be four or five total episodes and they're looking at the drug shortage crisis and it's really interesting oh, wow. they've done some great reporting and the first one is on The shortage of uh, hyperbaric bupivacaine. And they go around and they interview Mm. some uh, departments uh, looking, talking to the obstetric anesthesiologists, and asking them, you know, how this affected their practice, what did they do when they couldn't get hyperbaric bupivacaine. Uh, some places did some really they kind of took advantage of the of fact that they couldn't get it to do some some research on alternatives and look at the effects that had on patients and outcomes. And it's really, really interesting. And then they're going to have a, additional episodes they are going to talk about different Uh, shortages and how different drug shortages have come about. They're going to delve more in future episodes into why this is happening. Um, So really interesting Mm -hmm. stuff, and I I recommend people check that out.
0: I I think two unrelated ones, one that I tell my residents and medical students every day, um, if you uh, want to keep up with the ICU literature and what's happening in, in your medical specialties literature, join Twitter. Yeah, I have found Twitter is the very best way to keep up with all of the key and meaningful changes and occurrences that are happening in any literature um, that you happen to be passionate about. And and you end up of course following people that care about it, like you care about it. And so I I think great examples of this are, are I of course interested in ICU rehab and I follow the Dale Needham's there at Hopkins ICU rehab Twitter feed and, and Dale's Twitter feed as well as others that are passionate about that in this field. And I, I feel like that has done more for my knowledge of this field than than anything I've I've ever done. And then the last one I'm going to make is be, on the nutrition side for people at home is, um, you know, if you're going to pick a few foods to make sure you eat every day, I, I think if all of us ate more red peppers, more blueberries, more sweet potatoes, more broccoli, and 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 more fish like oily fish like tuna, we'd all be healthier people. Mm. And I, I think the, the fundamental thing that I tell my patients. That I think is a piece I really want them to take home, and I think it's true for all of us, is we all need to take in more protein. Um, I think most of us don't get enough, and taking in protein before you go to bed has been shown to improve your muscle mass about 15 to 17%, even if you're elderly. Hmm. Some branching amino acids before you go to bed is essential. And the other piece is everybody probably should take vitamin D3, 2,000 IUs every day because almost everyone's deficient, especially people who work in the hospital all
1: day. Yeah, that's right. We never see the sun um well those University are great great recommendations if people want to follow you on twitter can they do that
0: absolutely and what um, it's, it's just at paul underscore wishmeyer
1: all right and we'll, so it's just my name. we'll list that as well um, paul thank you so much for coming on the show this was really fantastic and i think people will really appreciate it and learn a lot thanks
0: for having me it's it's really been an honor and a joy to be on the on the show
1: all right that was fantastic i learned a ton and hope you did too let us know what you thought Go to the website, ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave a comment. Let us know what you thought. Others can learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw. The podcast is at ACRAC Podcast, and Dr. Wishmeyer is at Paul underscore Wishmeyer. So we'll put that in the show notes, but join the conversation. Let us know what you thought. You can also join the Facebook group. We have an ACRAC Facebook group. Join there and be part of the ongoing discussion. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to, you got it, patreon.com slash e o n.com/acrac That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also leave a donation anytime at paypal.me slash Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. We really, really appreciate it. A huge thank you to our intern, Kimia Kashkuli, who actually played a huge part in preparing for this episode and found the article by Dr. Wishmeyer in the first place. Kimia, thank you so much. Thank you to the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo, who is responsible for our original ACRAC music. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. And thanks to Brian Park for doing some excellent outlines for many of the episodes. You'll see them continuing to pop up. All right. That is it for today. Thanks for listening. For Dr. Paul Wishmeyer and the AgRag podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.